Coming up on Two Idiots Taking on the World. I'm not a free speech purist, but I think the way that I view all of these issues is through a lens of power. I don't necessarily want like the KKK just because it has less power in our current society to have like a higher voice. <laughs> yeah. And this is probably where Adrian will tell me it gets kind of dicey, but where you also have to look at like. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of Two Ideas Taking on the World. Today, we're talking to Ben Spielberg, who is someone who I would consider a mentor. He's super smart, and he's very qualified in the field of economics. So maybe you can introduce himself and tell us why he is so qualified and how smart he is. Oh, that's very kind, Adrian. I appreciate it. It's uh, really nice to be on and was uh, thankful to get your invitation. Um, as Adrian said, my name is Ben Spielberg, and... Um, I used to work on labor market issues uh, full-time when I lived in Washington, D.C., um, and then I also have some kind of personal experience with unions, which I know you guys want to talk a lot about, which I'm excited to. So I uh, worked as a teacher um, as my first job out of college and got really involved with the San Jose Teachers Association, so I served on the executive board of that union for a couple years. When I moved to DC, I worked for an organization called the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And uh, I was a research associate there. And then I also managed what was called our full employment project. Um, so worked on kind of a wide range of labor market issues and then a whole bunch of other economic issues. Um, had my own podcast that I co-hosted with um, my boss at the time, um, whose name is Jared Bernstein. He was the former chief economist to Joe Biden uh, when Biden was the vice president. Um, so we did that podcast together. We kind of did all of our kind of research writing and policy advocacy together. It was a ton of fun and I got to learn a lot about issues that I had kind of been blogging about myself since uh, 2013. So I started a blog um, where I kind of talk about policy and political issues since 2013. And in this job, I got to kind of work on those issues more full time. Um, but when I was there, I actually also organized a union um, at that organization. So at the Center on Budget oh, and wow. Policy Priorities, formed a union when we were there. Um, I left that organization before the union was fully recognized and had their first contract, but they now have their first contract. And then um, I ran a political campaign and then came out back to San Jose um, Unified. And now I'm in uh, district management in San Jose Unified mm -hmm. School District. Um, but my office is in the Teachers Association office building, so still maintain close close ties to the union. So I love unions, um, did a lot of research on them, as I said, have been a part of a couple, uh, well, been a part of one um, in kind of union leadership and then in another helped organize it. And then I've been on the management side of things too. So it's a topic I think is really fascinating and I'm really looking forward to diving into it. Wait, yeah, just really quickly, uh, I was curious. Uh, the person you said you did the podcast with, his name is Jared, Jared Bernstein. Did he write for the CBPP too? Yes. Yeah, so he, he's a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Um, and uh, he has his own blog as well, which is called On the Economy. And our podcast was called On the Economy Podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yes, he works for the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And he was kind of so the full employment project, which I managed, that was like his creation at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. So that's kind of, we worked on everything together through that full employment project. Yeah, the only reason I ask is because I'm pretty sure I remember, I, I did debate in high school, and I kind of remember citing a Bernstein of the CBPP at least once or twice. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, it might actually be the person you're referring to. 
it's yeah. probably him. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it looks like you have tons of experience with unions, more so than I even thought, which is great. Um, so I guess uh, the first question to start our discussion is, um, what is the aim of unions? What are they trying to solve? What are the current problems with the labor market in general? And how do unions help? Okay, um, that's a great, it's a great set of questions. So I'm going to start first with kind of like the what is a union and what is mm -hmm. the goal of unions? Because I think that um, it's something that's not always understood as much as I think would be helpful for people. So mm -hmm. a union is just basically a formal collective group of people who decide that they want to join together and have a say in their workplace conditions and terms of their employment. Um, that's really all that it is. Anybody who uh, is kind of an employee of some organization can be part of a union. And what uh, forming a union does is it enables you to sit down at a negotiation with your employer, not just you as an individual, but with kind of your collective group of people and talk about wages and benefits, which is the traditional kind of union role, but also about a variety of other things related to how your work is done. So it could be kind of organizationally, what goals do you pursue? It could be um, kind of things related to what are our policies on remote work? Um, it could be how do we integrate kind of, uh, we're an organization that does a lot of uh, economic work, but we are really passionate about climate. How do we integrate climate work into our discussion of economics. Um, so there's a lot of topics that unions can cover and there's really no um, theoretical restrictions on what unions can talk about. There are some legal restrictions um, and we can talk a little bit more about that if you want, depending on where you live, because there's been a real kind of attack on unions over the years, but at their kind of core, what unions are, they're just a um, formalized recognition of a group of people who have shared interests and want to sit down and talk about those shared interests with the management of wherever they work. Yeah. So one thing I just wanted to go back to one thing you said, which is that there has been an attack on unions. And I think to some degree, that's definitely true. I remember reading something that says that the union membership has declined by like in half over the last 40 years or something like that. Um, so I guess I kind of had like two questions based off of that, which is like first, um, what do you think is like one of the biggest threats towards unions? And second, are there any like, I'm curious if there are any laws or any restrictions that employers can put on employees who join unions or on the formation of unions themselves? Um, I'm, I'm not very educated on that topic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, unions uh, got recognized and kind of most of the rights that you have to form a union uh, in the private sector got um, codified back in the 1930s. Um, there was uh, the National Labor Relations Act was passed then, and then um, there was kind of legislation later in the 70, uh, 60s and 70s that um, established some of the rights for public sector unions. Um, so in terms of uh, you, you know where those things come from, there were a lot of people who kind of saw in the labor market in the United States some big problems in terms of how workers were treated. Um, and what working conditions were. And they kind of formed together, did a lot of advocacy to try to get some of these laws on the books. And they basically established your right to join together and form this kind of collective union organization. Union membership hit its peak um, around 
uh, let me see here, around the 19, late 1950s, uh, probably is when union membership hit its peak. Um, around that time, about a third of the United States workforce was unionized. Um, but the thing that, um, and so one of the things that unions did, and you may hear this when people talk about um, kind of the benefits of unions, like the 40 hour work week, largely a product of unions. Um, things like minimum wage laws were pushed really hard by, like they were part of the union movement to kind of get minimum wages established. Um, all sorts of like safety standards in workplaces, unions were pretty instrumental in that. Um, and so as kind of people started unionizing after the passage of this initial legislation in the late 1930s, workers made a lot of gains in terms of the things that could protect them in the workplace. And, uh, you know, once they started getting stronger, uh, employers were not crazy about this because the thing that unions do is they do take power away from employers, right? So, um, and to me, this is a real feature of unions, right? And it's why I think they're really important. I think inherently in a uh, employment relationship, the boss has way more power than the individual worker. If you're applying for a job or you get your first job, um, you'll kind of experience this where like you have to just be really cognizant of kind of what are the rules? What is your boss doing? You don't have as much of a say. You might have a great boss. Um, and again, I've worked with great bosses. Um, but if you don't have that kind of formal structure where you can band together, pretty much the boss makes the rules and you follow them. Um, and so when you have a union, what happens is then workers can say, hey, wait a minute. I don't think that that's the right way for things to go. Let's talk about it. Um, and employers don't tend to love that because it means generally that they're going to be getting less money for themselves from whatever the business is bringing in, if it's a business, and they have less control over all of the decisions they want to make because if the employees think that something different is the way you should go, the employer no longer unilaterally is able to just say, here's what we're doing. Um, so there were kind of a real sustained onslaught, largely from um, I think what people typically consider right-wing institutions and forces, although I don't love that term, I think Adrian and I might have talked about that at some point, um, but uh, there was pretty a consistent, very well-funded effort to roll back some of the labor protections that were on the books. And that's been going on for now like 55, 60 years. Um, unions today are making a little bit of a comeback, but um, union membership has dropped from, I said, about a third of the workforce back in the 1960s. Today in the private sector, it's around 10%. Um, so it's much lower in the private sector. The public sector is still higher. Um, that, you know, and teachers, again, are a good example of a public sector workforce that is largely unionized. Um, but in the private sector, a lot of unions have been really eviscerated, um, and that's been tough. And I know you asked some other questions, but I should stop because I don't want to talk too long and see if you guys have other questions or, or yeah. want Yeah, so I, I had a question. So. You talked about how um, there's been like this onslaught on unions and it's um, come from the right wing or from know, corporate interests, et cetera. Um, so I guess my question is getting to kind of um, what their reasoning was because, you know, I've read something saying that, you know, unions, um, they create a distortion in the market and that when they um, raise wages above equilibrium value, then that causes a bunch of companies to go out of business. Is there any merit to that? Why are they wrong? Um, is that a fair argument? Yeah, so I would say I don't tend to think that argument is fair or there is much merit to that. Um, but it is kind of the classic argument, I think, that people might make against against unions. You know, another argument that people make about unions is 
some unions in some cases um, may make decisions that aren't great, right, for societies. So I think one classic example is police unions. And there's a lot of people who I would say share many of my political beliefs. Um, and again, I don't love the terms left wing and right wing, but who you would typically think of as the left wing, who think police unions are a really bad form of union. I tend to disagree with the concept of like, the union itself is bad, but there are instances of unions that do some things that are pretty terrible. Um, so I think that that's like one area where I would say, I do understand where some people might look at something like, here's what the police union did and have some concerns. And I would love to talk more about kind of that topic mm -hmm. later if you want. Um, but the idea that um, unions raise wages above the quote unquote equilibrium wage, um, they raise wages above what they would otherwise be. That's 100% true. Again, to me, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, but it's the, the reason that I think that that's wrong is because the concept of equilibrium wage, as typically discussed in economics, is extremely misleading. Because the assumption that economists and people who typically make that argument use is that you have a very simple model of how markets work and how labor markets work where there's perfect information, there's a kind of equal power between employers and employees, and they can freely negotiate to kind of set a price that works well for both the employer and the employee. Um, and that's just totally divorced from reality. Like I think most people, again, who have been in the labor market know that that's not how looking for a job works. It's not how power works in the labor market, because typically if you're an individual, um, well, one, you don't really have the ability to turn down jobs a lot of the time if you're somebody who's low income, because your family needs to put food on the table right away. So like that job's super important to you. Um, two, uh, again, you know, the employer has way more information than you do about what their profits are, what their supply chains are, what their business model is. Um, that they typically don't disclose to their employees. So for you to be able to, as an individual, go into a room with your employer and say, hey, you guys made $15 million in profits last year. You personally took in $5 million. I've looked at the books across the organization. You could afford to pay me a $30,000 raise, and that would, be total, that would totally work. Um, that's something workers don't really have the ability to do. And then they also fear for their job security if they go in and do that because there are other people who the employer might bring in because there's generally a surplus of people who are actually in need of a job versus, uh, versus like what em employers can wait longer to fill a position than a lot of employees can wait to kind of get a position. So um, I think you're 100% right. And what you often see again in uh, labor market discussions is uh, unions absolutely raise wages, but I would say that they raise wages more to what an appropriate wage might be rather than disrupting what like a reasonable equilibrium should be, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that does make sense. I just wanted to uh, touch a little bit on the point you said where there is not perfect information within yeah. the economy. I think obviously that's true. Uh, I'm curious as to like, do uh, do unions, like is this a feature of unions where they do get more information maybe about what the company's balance sheets looks like or like what they think a fair wage is going to be? Or is it just like there are two competing forces that are pushing against each other and you feel like when the uh, workers are able to collectivize and push back against the 
uh, employer, then it just settles on a more fair value? Yeah, that's a great question. So it depends is the short answer. There's not kind of a one size fits all. So some em employees are able to get pretty complete information from employers. Um, and then some have a much harder time getting it when they unionize. And a lot of it does depend on kind of the history of the employer employee relationship and then the specific things that the employee group wants to prioritize. Um, so it's not, there's not kind of a hard and fast answer to that. But that is one thing that you can advocate for. So, you know, I mentioned that um, at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, I organized a union. And one of the things that that union pushed for is more salary transparency. So at that organization previously, um, you know, nobody really had any information about what other people at the organization were making. Um, and that allows some inequities to exist. You know, when you're in a salary negotiation, your employer is able to say, well, here's the best that I can do. Um, and now there are um, kind of more bands that you can see that like, if this is my position, here's the range of salaries that I theoretically could make, which enables you to be like, oh, I can ask for that $10,000 raise because I know that that's something that somebody in my position gets typically or can get. Um, so it does depend. Um, and I generally think it's a great thing for employees to push for, um, but it's not always something they get. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned earlier about collective bargaining and how unions raise wages. Um, so my question is kind of um, what I would believe is that the the market's competition would allow for employers to try and fight for employees. They would try and raise their wages and benefits to entice their workers to come to them. And I think that um, like logically, I think that that's probably true. Um, I, I guess you can argue that maybe like empirically or in practice that doesn't quite happen. But I'm, I'm wondering what makes it so that doesn't happen because I'm imagining, let's say you're, you're trying to, you're an unskilled laborer and you're looking for work and then you can choose between Subway, Carl's Jr. and McDonald's. They're all hiring and they all are trying to entice you to come work for them because they need a worker. Why is it that that sort of um, competition between those firms doesn't lend itself to higher wages and we need unions to do that? Yeah, well, so when you're talking about kind of the choices that might be available to workers when they're looking for a job, um, one answer is that in some places, there literally are not multiple employers. So yeah. there's something yeah. called like the monopsony model of the labor market, which is like the classic example is say you live in kind of like a small town where really the only place to work is the Walmart or something like that then Walmart basically sets the wage because they're literally the only employer in town. Now, so let's say we're in San Jose and we've got all of these companies uh, that theoretically uh, would have to compete for workers and raise their wages. So the situation that you're again in is uh, right now, the jobs that uh, you're talking about, if you're talking about Carl's Jr., McDonald's, things like that, those are minimum wage jobs. Um, so those, the wages probably wouldn't, be as high if there weren't minimum wage laws on the books. But those are jobs that people generally don't want to take because uh, they aren't super high paying. And uh, they are jobs that there's a surplus of people who are in desperate need of some cash, who are kind of forced to take the first sort of job in that domain that they can get. So the situation that those employers are in is they don't actually have to worry too much about any sort of like, I'm not gonna be able to get the workers that I want because there's tons of people who are in such desperate economic straits that 
they just need a job and will need to take a job. Um, the employer doesn't really need to like raise wages to entice them away. Now, the counter argument that I would say to that, um, and this is an argument that some proponents of raising the minimum wage make, and it's a reasonable one, mm -hmm. but I don't fully, like, it, it's an interesting conversation. So some people will say, and I think like there's some merit to this, if you raise the minimum wage, that's actually gonna have benefits for the company. Like if you're a forward thinking employer, mm -hmm. you're gonna do the type of thing that you just talked about, Adrian, and you're gonna raise wages yourself and you're gonna be okay actually with a minimum wage increase because it means you're gonna get more productivity. You're gonna get people who aren't necessarily as desperate, who are not turning over in that job as much, who feel more valued as an employee and so they're gonna work harder for you. So that may have benefits for you as a company Minimum wage proponents do make that case. And often at those companies that pay such low wages, you do see a ton of turnover that may be negative for the company in some respects. Mm -hmm. The counter argument that I would say is there's a reason employers don't do that. And it's because they can get away with paying people really low wages and then make bigger profits for themselves as executives, which is what they do. I mean, those companies are very profitable and in some respects, yes, I think there would be benefits for them raising the wage. And that's probably why when you look at things like minimum wage research, or it's one, of, it's one of the reasons why when you look at things like minimum wage research, you don't see any of the predictions that people who say minimum wage policy is bad would predict would happen when you raise minimum wages. Part of it probably is you get some of those productivity improvements. But I think the main reason they do that is because it's a redistribution of money from the people who kind of are in charge to the people who aren't. I was actually curious as to what your thought was on, I, I know that this was like, I guess, kind of a famous graph from the EPI, which basically says that around the 1970s-ish, uh, the productivity of the workplace went up, whereas the wage kind of flatlined. Um, yeah. So like you said, union membership peaked in the 1950s-ish, right? Uh, so then I was kind of curious as to like, was, uh, so what kind of like, I was wondering if there's some sort of like historical explanation as to why that occurred, specifically that they started diverting around the 1970s. Uh, yeah, was it like because of a decline in union membership, something like that? So I think the um, the graph you're referencing, I think 1968 usually is the yeah. reference year that's used, um, which is kind of the year the minimum wage in real dollar terms, so adjusted for inflation, was at its peak. It was like a dollar sixty or something back then, but that's higher in in today's money uh, than the current minimum wage. Um, so when I say it hit its peak kind of at the beginning of the 1960s, end of the 1950s, it held somewhat constant up until closer to that point. And it started dropping off um, closer to the 1970s, like 1968 time period. So union membership in 1968 was 29%. Um, in 1960, it was 31%, so pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, but then if you get down to like 1980, it's down at 24. And then today, union membership is 11% um, nationwide. And it might actually be lower than that because the graph I'm looking at right now stops in 2015. Um, so I think unions are one reason for that. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that though. Like I wouldn't chalk that graph up only to declining unionization. I think the unionization decline is a very big piece of the story. But, you know, another one, I think tax policy is a piece of the story. Um, that's, that's really important there. And then um, deregulation, I think, had, had played a decent role also in kind of wealth consolidation that we saw over the past 40 or 50 years.
You know, one thing that I read was um, that wage growth has been kind of stagnant, but that it's been unequal um, in that actually the lower income workers have been seeing much higher gains in wages than we've seen middle or higher income workers get. And um, reading about it, it, it seemed to me like that was a facet of low unemployment, in which when you have like a tighter labor market, then, you know, these, these, employee, these employees get higher wages because, again, um, employers want them. And that was the conclusion that I drew um, because I feel like that makes sense, right? We see lower income wages rising a lot because there's a lot of supply of jobs, but, you know, the supply of laborers available from the un unemployment pool is less. So um, does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, my old boss, that was kind of one of his crusades as part of the mm -hmm. full employment project was you want to get unemployment down to have precisely the effect that you talked about because... Mm -hmm. Again, if you think about to the extent that there are competitive labor markets anywhere, if you have uh, lower unemployment, that again causes the situation that I mentioned previously that we talked about, like the San Jose situation um, yeah. with low wage employers, it means that actually maybe they'll have to start competing and paying higher wages. So that was one of the like big crusades that he had and one of the um, ideas behind the full employment project is if you drive employment low enough, so that there really aren't very many people uh, drive unemployment low enough. So there really aren't that many people um, who want a job but can't find one. That means then employers do have to start paying higher wages and it's low wage workers who tend to benefit because those are the people who, again, have the least power typically in the labor market. The caveats that I would put on that, I would put two caveats on that. So one, um, is that uh, one of the reasons that we've actually seen higher wage growth for low wage workers in recent years is due more to minimum wage increases than anything related to declines in unemployment. So um, there have been a lot of state and local uh, increases in the minimum wage around the country and that's driven a lot of the low income wage gains, which has been fantastic. Um, and I'm a big supporter of that minimum wage policy. Um, and then uh, the other caveat that I would give is economists talk about a rate of unemployment that they actually think um, is full employment, again, is the term that they use, mm -hmm. which essentially means, are you guys familiar with um, like the way that unemployment, I feel like sometimes the way unemployment is discussed in like the general public is very different from what economists mean by unemployment. So, um, the economic definition of unemployment is not the number of people who don't have a job. It's people who are actively looking for looking a job. For and, a job. Find yeah. um, and uh, economists for a very long time thought that the full employment, the, the unemployment rate that's consistent with full employment, which means that the only people who are looking for a job and can't find one are in what is called frictional unemployment, which basically means like, this isn't a problem where they've been looking for a really long time and they're having trouble. They're just kind of in between jobs. People are always going to quit or, and look for something new. Like there's some level of unemployment that's natural. And economists used to think it was like around 5% is the level of unemployment that's natural. Um, I wrote a piece a few years ago saying like, that's crazy. Like the real unemployment rate that should exist is very close to 0%. And because frictional unemployment shouldn't be that high. And what I said is the highest I really think it should be in that piece is something like 1.7%, which is the frictional unemployment rate, or sorry, which is the 
unemployment rate for white college grads um, during the 1990s when people thought the labor market was really tight because there are things like discrimination in the labor market and then there are also like employers, um, you have more bargaining power if you are a college grad than if you're not. So that's one reason that college grads make more money than people who aren't college grads. Um, but my view is if you really have a, if you really want to have a society where people are able to find jobs, you don't want it to be, um, and you want wages to rise because you have like a truly competitive situation. You don't want people who don't have a college education um, to be in a situation where like it is way, um, their levels of unemployment are way higher than for a white college grad. Like you actually want, maybe the wages are lower under whatever, like people have different theoretical um, feelings about what wages should be. I'm kind of a socialist. So I tend to think that wages should be more equalized across um, different groups of people, regardless of kind of levels of education and things along those lines. But I think there are a lot of people who think that um, there should be discrepancies in wages based on education level. And I think even if you think that, you probably don't think that um, there should be a huge difficulty in finding jobs for people who are, who don't have those higher education levels and who are fulfilling some of these jobs in society that don't necessarily require a college degree. Sorry, I okay. feel like that was a little convoluted and rambly. I apologize. No, I think I think I get uh, at least some of it. Yeah, but um, I, I was actually curious as to what like so you say that the natural rate of unemployment, if you uh, if you account for frictional unemployment, should be about one point seven percent. And I know our our unemployment rate definitely now is a lot higher than that. But are there like steps that you would recommend generally that we should take in order to achieve that natural rate of unemployment? Yeah, it's a great question. So. I would say that um, the two policies that I think are constructed best to get us there, um, and I'm supportive of both, but I lean towards one. I don't think they necessarily have to be uh, mutually exclusive. You could do like pieces of them, but I would say a universal basic income and a federal jobs guarantee. Um, so universal basic income, I think, is a little bit more indirect but it would mean, and I think a universal basic income for it to work in this respect would have to be much larger than some of the ones that have been proposed. So like Andrew Yang's was $1,000 a month. I think it's gotta be like 2,500 bucks a month, at least. That's kind of my like UBI level. Um, but uh, that would increase uh, the ability for people who uh, cannot find a job that appeals to them to have a little bit more bargaining power. Because again, I think all of these things come back to bargaining power um, and to say, you know what? I know I'm not gonna die if I don't take this job right now because I can still pay my rent and buy some food. Let me wait and try to find something that I like more. Um, so I think a UBI would be really helpful in that respect. Um, and then a federal jobs guarantee would basically be the government comes in and says, uh, we have all of these unmet needs nationally. So we have a climate crisis that's impending. We've got infrastructure that's kind of in shambles in different places around the country. We've got school facilities that are outdated. These are things the government should take over and make sure are um, in decent shape for our citizens. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go out and we're gonna say, hey, if you're looking for a job and you can't find one, we're gonna hire you, we're gonna pay you a good wage and we're gonna put you to work doing some of this stuff that's gonna be a societal benefit for everybody. Um, so my personal preference is a UBI just because my view is sometimes I think when people talk about a federal job, jobs guarantee, 
you know, there's this understanding that there's uh, dignity to working and people generally want to work, which is true. Um, and I think that that's great and very true. But my view is not everybody can work. And so you really want a system that makes sure that nobody's starving, nobody's on the street, regardless of their capacity to work. And even though there might be some freeloaders, because people I think always worry a little bit about like the edge cases. And yeah, there may be some people who are like, I'm fine with my 2,500 bucks a month and I'm just gonna do other things. I think most people are motivated by social incentives enough to do something um, at some point um, and get involved in, in our society. And then I also think like, I want everybody to be able to, you know, have somewhere to stay and have food, even if they're not doing something job wise, that's just kind of like a value for me. So that's why I would lean towards UBI. But I think both that and the federal job guarantee would be a huge improvement over what we do now and the policies that we have in place now. Yeah, I, uh, I, oh yeah you can go Adrian, but I was just going to say that like, yeah, Adrian and I, I think our first episode was definitely on a UBI, and since then we brought it up in almost every single episode. We, I think we're both big big supporters of a UBI, but yeah, Adrian, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I, yeah, we definitely are in favor of a UBI. Um, I haven't really read much about the size of how big it should be, um, because I think getting to 2500 a month sounds kind of scary and like a lot, um, but um, that's interesting. I, I haven't read about what the implications of that are, so I can't really comment on it. But um, on the federal jobs guarantee, uh, I, I know that I actually did some research on this. And I remember the thing that I found troubling with it, and this was published by the Cato Institute, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But um, uh, essentially what they were saying is that um, government jobs are known to be a lot more relaxed, more cushy, less intensive than private sector jobs. So I think they made some kind of prediction saying that um, if we have a federal jobs guarantee, we're gonna take a whole quarter of the entire private sector and they're all gonna be crowded out and they're gonna move into government jobs. So I think the, the, the question and the, the concern with me when it comes to a federal jobs guarantee and honestly with any kind of big overreach of government is that it usually ends up crowding out private industry. And the, I'm guessing that would, like, is that a feature not a bug with, with the jobs guarantee? Is that what you would say? So I tend to like the public sector better than the private sector. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say there are examples definitely in the public sector where you have things that are not functioning correctly. I think that's 100% true. I would say there's also examples in the private sector where that's 100% true. And what I've typically found to be the case and kind of observed is that doing things at a large scale is really hard. So I think typically when you have a gigantic company or a very large kind of government entity that sometimes may not run as efficiently as possible. You know, I, and I'll give you an example. Today, um, I was trying to get a hold of FedEx and UPS about some shipments of hotspots for our schools because uh, we need to make sure for distance learning that every student who doesn't have an internet connection at home has something. So we've been ordering these hotspots, trying to get a hold of somebody who knows where your order is for FedEx or, U or UPS is a nightmare, right? Um, and like, I think if people call Comcast and try to get deal with Comcast is a total nightmare. Um, so I think people have these experiences in both the private sector and the public sector. I think there are examples, I think either one can be well run and there's nothing inherently that makes either one more likely to be kind of a useful feature of society. My view is, and again, we may disagree on this to some extent, but my view is the main difference is in the public sector, the stated and theoretical goal, at least, is the public good. 
And to me, that's really positive, right? Like, so when you think about um, City of San Jose, um, what the goal is supposed to be of the leaders who are working in San Jose is to deliver great services for the residents in San Jose. It doesn't mean that they always do it, but that is everybody's like stated job responsibility, what they're hired to do, why they go into work there. If you look at a private company, sometimes they have really great missions, but the stated purpose and what shareholders are expecting from a publicly owned private company is making a lot of money for the people who run the organization. And to me, like, I think generally you're more likely to get better outcomes for society if your goal is get good outcomes for society than if your goal is make the people who own this thing a ton of money. So that's, and again, mm -hmm. I know that there may be some disagreements about that, but I don't think there's anything inherently um, worse. Of, I, like I, I would say mm -hmm. to me, there's a slight inherent better to the public sector. And I often want to move things into the public sector like healthcare because to me, the purpose of having a healthcare system is get people healthcare, not make anybody money. And so I think we'd be much better off with public sector healthcare than with private sector healthcare. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll kind of jump in and sort of say what I would say to that, um, which is yeah. the reason why the, I would say that the private sector is kind of inherently maybe a tad bit better than public sector is because, you know, if you're fed up with Comcast, then call AT&T. But if you're fed up with the city of San Jose, you can't call city of San Jose too. And there's only, there's only one city of government you can work with, right? So I feel like to me, when you allow for that kind of competition between different service providers, as long as there is actual viable competition, which again is debatable, but I think in most cases it is, then in that way you're able to get better services provided to you. So I think that that'd be like what I would say to um, like which one is, is better is, yeah, if you don't like Comcast, call AT&T. If you don't like FedEx, then call um, DHL or whatever, you know. Well, so can we stick with this for a second? Because I think it's- Sure, yeah, go ahead. Question. So um, say I've called, and again, I'm, this is a, a current job thing that I can give you just kind of personal experience with. Say I've called Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Sprint, and none of them are gonna do it right. Um, then mm -hmm. I'm kind of screwed because there's like only a small handful of major carriers. Now, what's my recourse? Public relations, basically, right? I can go and I can, throw a fit online um, or, you know, try to organize people to shame them basically into saying this actually might impact your business if I can get enough people to care about it, maybe. In the public sector, you have a way to one, elect new policymakers. So you can like totally get the decision makers in that organization out. And again, they have like a stated commitment not to make money in the public sector. They have a stated commitment to serve their residents. So you have mechanisms that are formalized in all of those places to get a resolution that is much different from what you're able to do in the private sector because in the private sector at the end of the day, Verizon's gonna say, well, yeah, I'd love to help you. Or you know, Comcast is gonna say, yeah, I would love to help you, but like we got, we're a business, we gotta make some money. Um, and like, I, I'm not, I'm not running a charity here. I can't give away this stuff for free. At the end of the day, what the state of California has to do, what the city of San Jose has to do is they got to say, Hey, we required everybody to be online. We got to, we got to pony up and we got to, we got to make this happen. Um, because they are accountable to a public, to the public in a way that some of these private companies are. I don't fully agree with Adrian. I don't fully agree with Ben on either of these things, but 
I my opinion on this would more be like I, I I'm curious if both y'all would agree with this characterization, but I think the private sector is more efficient at accomplishing its stated goal. So Ben says the stated goal of the private sector is to make money. I kind of agree with that. And I think they are technically more efficient at that because like like you said, right, everyone's stated goal is to just make money and anyone who makes slightly less money will just be outcompeted by a competitor, like in a perfect market. I'd say with the government, um, just in general, well, first, I think the reason why I like local government more than like state or federal government uh, it's just because like at the local government level, the thing that Ben talks about happens more frequently, which is that you can petition the local government, you can vote people in and out of office very much easier than you can with the federal government or with the state government. Um, but then also what I would also say is that even then elections happen every some odd years um, and you can't petition your uh, council member to or whoever the local official is to say can you please change this but you still would need a sufficient number of people to go and petition them and say hey all of us are not going to vote for you unless you do this right and um i'd say that like i think that that process makes it slightly less efficient than the public sector would be like if the public or if sorry than the private sector so i would say like if the private sector's technical goal was like to achieve the most social good I think that the private sector technically could achieve that better, but I just don't think it's their goal. I'm curious if y'all agree with that characterization. Um, sure, I can go first. Um, so I think what I would say to that is that, yeah, I think that's true that um, the private sector is much more receptive to changes to consumer demands than the public sector is. I think that, you know, you're instead of voting with your vote, you're voting with your dollar. So I think that, and that's also a much more immediate impact. Let's say that some company is found doing something terrible, all of a sudden their stock plummets, people boycott them and that's it, they're done. Meanwhile, with a the politician, they're stuck entrenched there for four more years. And also you can make the argument that a lot of times the ones making those missteps aren't actually the big figurehead politicians. It's this total entrenched and entangled bureaucracy that's making all these missteps and being really inefficient. And you can't really hold them very accountable. So I think that there's those kind of, that kind of friction between public opinion and government, which I see that I don't find that very effective. Um, and then also like on the idea about how the private sector is there for, for profits and the government is there for societal good. I think that one thing that Milton Friedman says that the intention and the outcome need to be divorced from each other. Because I think that it's totally true that capitalism is all about greed and it's about accumulating wealth. But I think it's the first system we've ever had to take human desire for greed and wealth and put it towards societal benefit. Meanwhile, government doesn't do that. It takes human greed and self-interest and turns it into corruption, turns it into lack of efficiency, turns it into complacency, and you don't see actual good outcomes when you have this really good intention. So um, that's what I would say to what Sid's saying. Um, I'm curious to hear Ben's points on that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I would say that, and again, for the examples that you gave of, uh, does it take time? In either system, I would say yes, it does take time. Mm -hmm. um, are the organizations, whether it's government or private sector, responsive to needs and feedback on a fast basis? I think it's comparable, personally, um, because I don't, like, you do have the instances of private institutions that are, uh, you know, blacklisted for something that they did and they crash. But I'll give you an example. DoorDash recently um, is a company that was found, I don't know if you guys remember this, but to be stealing tips from their drivers. Um, did you guys hear about that? No. Nope. So they that. were 
they were putting a tip. They basically say to the driver, you're going to make 10 bucks an hour. I don't remember what the wage was, but you're going to make 10 bucks an hour. Then if you order from DoorDash and you put in an $8 tip, they'd be like, hey, you got that $8 tip. So we're only going to pay you two bucks because now you're going to get your, your 10 bucks still. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a big like public outcry about it. People threw a fit. DoorDash is still around, right? So like they managed that PR crisis, got through it. Um, they did ultimately change the policy, but that's no different from what happens in the public sector a lot of the time when people get really mad about something for some sort of policy change. Somebody was going to do something, now they're doing something different because people got mad. Um, I'll interject real quick though, but couldn't that driver then just say, okay, I'll drive for Grubhub now or I'll drive for Uber Eats instead of DoorDash? So they could, right, theoretically, mm-hmm. if they knew that, that, that they were able to do that and were able to kind of get that job quickly. And I'm sure some may have done that. Um, but again, I mean, I think the thing that you got to remember is it's not super easy to switch back and forth between different employers and jobs. And if you're somebody who relies on that money, it's tough to like, so yes, you can do that, but it's not as simple as just snapping my fingers and now I'm doing DoorDash. Um, I mean, doing uh, Uber Eats yeah. or Grubhub or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, those organizations too, and I would say again, thinking about like the monopsony nature of the labor market, what you have in a lot of these industries, and you're totally right about this, Adrian, you have like a couple big players, but they really function more like one sole player because they have pretty similar policies that are all the same. And because there's only a few of them, it's really hard for anybody else to break through because their market share is so large that like a small company coming into the system is just very difficult. Um, so that's like a big problem throughout a lot of our, com- our economy where like, if you think about the tech sector, you think about our media s- in, uh, system, you think about uh, fast food, you think about this kind of like gig economy stuff. A lot of it is run not by one company, but by like a small handful of gigantic companies, that's really hard for anybody else to break into. Um, I was gonna say something else on the public versus private piece and comparing the two from a social good stand. Oh, you said intention versus outcome, Milton Friedman, and we should divorce the two. Um, So I think that there is validity to that, right? Like the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions is like the common (laughs) common phrase, right? I haven't heard that, I like that, okay. Um, and I think that that is like totally legit to like be mindful of the fact you might have these two intentions, but what is the outcome? So I would say that capitalism has not been the success that it's often chalked up to be by, by its proponents and government has been much more of a success than its detractors often think that it has been. And again, I would say there are successes in both failures in both, but when you think about things like medicine and advances in public health, a lot of that has been possible because of government funding for research. Like that's driven huge advances in public health. The seeds of the internet were in government research. um, And that wouldn't have really been possible without research. The Defense Department did a lot of the research for um, the internet. Um, Things like, and then when you look at some of our like big societal good things. So these are two things I talked a lot about when I was at the Center on Budget and Policy uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities: healthcare and retirement security. So, when you compare in American society what Social Security does versus what private retirement programs do, 
Social Security pulls way more people out of poverty and does it way more efficiently. Their administrative costs are way lower than the administrative costs for privately managed retirement plans. When you look at Medicare and Medicaid versus private insurance, people like the care they receive on Medicare and Medicaid just as much as they do on private insurance, but they're not bankrupted on it. And those programs have lower overhead and lower cost growth than growth in the private sector in the United States. And then most companies that have a much bigger footprint for their healthcare um, in the government sector in other countries, they get better coverage at substantially reduced costs than we have in the United States. And one thing that I think was particularly fascinating about the healthcare debate, and I'm a big proponent of Medicare for all. Um, so like during the uh, presidential debate, like I followed the democratic primary discussion about it a lot. Um, a couple years ago, there was a study that came out from uh, the Mercatus Center, which is a conservative, quote unquote, again, I don't love conservative as a term, but conservative think tank called the Mercatus Center, um, where they looked at uh, the Bernie Sanders Medicare for All plan. And under their estimate of what actually was in the Bernie Sanders Medicare for All plan, and this is a conservative think tank, making mm -hmm. assumptions that I would really... I'm sorry. It's like three, $3 trillion less than what we have right now. I, I forget the exact yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was two, but it was like, yeah. it was slightly cheaper in terms of national health expenditures under the Bernie yeah. plan than under our current plan. And I was like, that's a conservative think tank coming up mm -hmm. with that number. Now they totally backtracked after they put that out there and they were like, well, we don't believe that the plan would actually be implemented as Bernie says it would. But I do think that that sort of thing is a good example of like, we have some really clear examples in the United States of the government sector doing a job that's better than what the private sector has been able to do. So I wouldn't, I would definitely not say every circumstance the government's going to run it better. Um, and I think, again, it's very dependent upon like who's in the organization, what does the leadership look like, what systems have they put in place to make that run efficiently. I would just say really hard when you're trying to do something big and a lot of people in the private and the public sector get it wrong. Sometimes they get it right. And I think we've got some great shining examples of where it's gone really right in the public sector. Yeah, I just, <laughs> that was a lot of info. I'm going to try to dissect it a little bit. Um, just going back to the first, like very first thing you said about yeah. DoorDash. Actually, I'm not sure, like just to defend my point here, I kind of, I actually don't totally agree with Adrian's thing that intention should be divorced from outcomes. Or I mean, I guess I kind of agree with it, but I don't agree that even though like the intention of capitalism is to make money that will always lead to social good. And I think the DoorDash example is a classic example of that because not always, shows, but better than government is what I was saying. Yeah. Better than government. Okay. But I think like the example still more or less proves my point, which was that the private sector is very good at accomplishing what their goal is. DoorDash's goal is to make money. Therefore, if it steals tips, it will make more money and it's like stock will, or stock will go up or whatever like that. Right. Um, so that's why I feel like DoorDash did that. And that that's, I think, a pretty clear example of where social good does not necessarily align with the profit motive. Um, I think we also discussed, like, previously that climate change is an example of that, um, where the profit motive does not always lead to social good. Then, so that's just kind of like wrapping up that discussion there. The second thing, I think, was about how if someone did not like DoorDash, they can just go to Grubhub and how there is technically, yeah, I feel like there is more or less a monopsony on labor, especially like those are the only three examples I can think about, about where uh, there is like this, I, I forgot, I don't know exactly what the sector is, but I'm also actually curious with regards to labor, right? If, if you're just like, if the point, if you work for DoorDash, then your skill is that you're able to drive and you get 
um, like food and deliver it to other people, right? But then under that same logic, like th that skill seems like it's very transferable to other things. Like you could also just drive for Uber or you could, I don't, I don't know, exa I don't exactly it's know. It's not even example. a skill. I could do that. I mean, it's not really a, you, you don't get trained okay, yeah. in driving for DoorDash, do you? Yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, it seems like, although there might just be a very few players in the food delivery industry there, I feel like there are the skills that you acquire are fairly transferable there. Uh, and then you made a lot of other good points. Uh, I totally, I'm kind of blanking on a lot of them right now. But I guess I'll go to the last point you talked about, which is healthcare. I've been trying to learn a lot more about healthcare. I'm still learning a lot. Um, but with regard to the Mercatus study, I think it's true. I, I definitely think it's true. Um, but I think this kind of relates back to something that I forget exactly who said it before, but that's the, the mixed system that we have right now is just like the worst of both worlds in that it has the highest cost and it has the worst outcome, which is why for sure Medicare for all would reduce cost. But I still think that there might be better options other than Medicare for all. Personally, I don't even know what they are, but yeah. Okay. That's just my thoughts on everything that kind of went down there. Yeah. And, and with the healthcare thing, it's funny because I think that, we all agree that the mixed system is the worst. Uh, and then I, I think um, Ben and I then go to the different sort of um, sides of it, of what's the better version, because I mean, I, I, I read like this, um, I, I skimmed this book that talks about how um, when you kind of get government out of healthcare and you allow for like price competition, um, like they do in Singapore, um, you see prices drop by like 75%. Um, and I've brought that up before on this podcast. And Oh, no one really told me that I was wrong, but I want to be told that I'm wrong now. So Ben, why am I, why am I wrong? Why, does that, why is that not true? So I actually, I don't think you're totally wrong on that in the sense that mm -hmm. there are systems that do not, that are not government run or that are not like the insurance is not fully covered by the government that can work well and do work well in different places mm -hmm. around the world. The thing that I would say is the common feature for all of them is a ton of government in, um, a t I said involved. So I'll say a, a government footprint that's very large. So if you're not doing something like Medicare for all where the government is the single payer, so sing single payer basically means, uh, you know, the government isn't employing the doctors or running the hospitals, but the government is the one setting the prices so that every hospital and every, um, organization that's providing care like they have kind of a consistent negotiated price that's set by one one entity um there are places that don't do that but they have very strict regulations on what you can charge for certain things and that can work i personally again lean towards i like the government doing it so i like the nhs right like i'd actually rather have the doctors employed by the government for the same. And this again, kind of gets back to the theoretical thing because I just think like, and my wife's a doctor. So, and uh, her and my mother-in-law, who's also a doctor, they're big Medicare for all supporters um, in part because yes, they like want to make a good living as a doctor, but the main reason they went into medicine is to help people. And when you have an insurance system that makes them think about, I'm treating this patient and here's what they need, but here's the price they're gonna have to pay at the end of the day. It changes their whole calculus of how they think about that, that patient's care. Mm -hmm. Whereas under the Medicare for All system, the thing I really like about it is it totally gets rid of that and it says the doctor makes the decision in conjunction with the patient and we cover it if it's one of the things that is uh, kind of a necessary procedure that we have. Um, 
but but again, I would say I don't think you're wrong because I do think that there are examples of places where there is a much more um, it's not a free market system, but it's a system that uh, is not run by the government, it's just highly regulated by the government and it works. But I think you do need the high regulation, even if you're not having the government run everything, just because without the high regulation, uh, you have skyrocketing prices and people who are in need not being able to get care because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think specifically on the Singaporean model, I, I've doing been doing a little bit of reading and I could definitely be wrong here, but from what I know, the government does put price caps, at least on most treatments, um, there are price controls. And there's also, I think the good thing that I actually really do support about the Singaporean model is the idea of like urgent care, the government subsidizes it. I don't exactly know what the name for like their system is, but I, I'm pretty sure they have something where if you have like a very urgent illness or health condition, then the government just subsidizes your entire cost. You really don't have to worry about your cost in that scenario. And that's something I definitely would support um for that's at least based off of the research i have done into the healthcare system um but yeah i think that's something i really want like implemented and but yeah I, i'd also agree that the mixed system is kind of the worst of all both worlds at this point you know there's one really interesting discussion i had with um an obama administration economist back when i was at the center on budget and policy priorities because you know my position on it on healthcare pretty different from the Obama administration's position and what they what they implemented. But we talked about cost sharing, which I think is like one really interesting example of this when you think about economic incentives. And their position really was like, they said, we need some cost sharing because otherwise people are going to get, like you don't want it to be totally free for people to get care because then they're gonna overutilize the care and they're not going to like see any reason to not go in and get it. And I was like, no, that's totally crazy. This is one of the things that like drives me nuts about economics because I think people act like the only incentive for people is economics. And I'm like, nobody wants to go to the doctor. I mean, maybe there are some people, right, who do want to spend all their time in the doctor or who are really nervous and like would overutilize the care. I think there are some people, but for the most part, people don't want to do that, but they do want to get the care they need. But then if you're going to charge them 20 bucks to go to the doctor, they're like, well, maybe I'm going to stay home and wait it out a little bit more. So really what you do is you lead to a bigger public health problem because you're thinking about economic incentives in a vacuum rather than thinking about the full scale of societal incentives. And again, my view about healthcare, the only incentive you want is for people to get, seek out the care they need when they need it. And then for doctors to be able to give them the care they need or send them home if they're crazy, right? Like if they come in and they're like, I need you to give me all this stuff. And the doctor's like, you're totally fine. Doctors should be able to send them home and not like run a bunch of stuff. But um, I think like the decision should be able to be made based on health rather than on like, oh, there's a $20 copay. So am I going to go in? Um, Because I know like I personally have thought about and I'm like totally fine economically. But when I thought about going to the doctor about certain things, I'm like, well, I want to look at what my insurance covers, what the price is. And like, we really don't want people to do that. Yeah. That's my thinking, at least. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, wait, I was actually, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I've never had a health and care insurance plan that I've looked at, but I, I was under the impression that you can't see the prices of like the procedures you go in for. I, I thought that was, is that, is that yeah, not that's a, what I brought up like, in, yeah. in our last podcast. And we talked about healthcare for like a little bit. I brought up that like um, the, one of the biggest issues with our current system is that 
um, it, it's so non-transparent and that like, you, like no one knows how much an MRI costs. No one knows how much like this random surgery costs. It's like a very hidden process behind big insurance companies and it's not very transparent. And one thing that Singapore does is they make it very transparent. It's like a, it's, it's like a catalog. You say, okay, which hospital here gives me the cheapest MRI? And then you go there and, and, and you get your procedure there. And ultimately you do want to manage the cost, right? Like somebody's mm-hmm. got to look at the costs and see like what ultimately are we going to need to run this system and what's reasonable? Because, you know, in healthcare, I think a lot of people talk about rationing. Um, and that is something mm-hmm. that does happen everywhere, right? Because there's not always going to be the ability for everybody to get the care that they want to need at the time that they want to need it all the time. So you have to do some prioritizing when it comes to healthcare. And then for me, the question is just, how do you want to prioritize? In America, we have the de facto prioritization that if you're rich, you get care, and if you're poor, you don't. Um, To me, it should be based on kind of, um, and again, this is how like other places think about it, is like, let's think about what are the most needed procedures? What are the big problems? Right now in the United States, if you were doing it this way, um, you know, coronavirus stuff would be at the top of the list, right? Like that would all get treated immediately. Other things would take a back seat. So if you said I need, and this is like, it happens to some extent in the United States right now, because people are trying to figure out a way to do it after the fact. But my thinking is again, like you want that to be done kind of on a large scale level to say like, here are the procedures that like people need to be seen right away or the problems that people need to be seen right away. Here are the ones that can wait longer. And then it works the same for everybody. It's not based on how much money you have. This relates back to something you said before, and I don't think it was with regards to healthcare, but I think it was with regards to the invention of like the internet, I think is what you said uh, was, yeah, it was like kind of formulated through DARPAnet and other military procedures uh, in the past. And I was curious what you thought of like, so even if the private sector doesn't create all of the innovations that the private sector is usually the best method to distribute goods um, to the populace in general. Because I think even if like the internet was invented by the military, um, I don't know, like I, I don't see that it would be distributed like efficiently to everybody without some sort of like privatization of it, which is I guess why we have like internet service providers and stuff like that. So I, uh, I actually think the internet should be a public utility. Um, so I would actually put it in government hands. And part of the reason for that, again, is I think um, we have a small number of ISPs that have a lot of power. And the whole, did you guys follow the net neutrality debate over the last several yeah. years? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that is some, gives you some kind of window into what I think some of the concerns are that when you have kind of ISPs that are thinking about profits, you have concerns about what is that going to mean in terms of who gets internet service and what rules are in place for that system. Um, So my view is it should be something more like water and electricity because pretty much everybody needs the internet now where you could potentially, and again, this works with some of our public utilities, right? Like PG&E is not a government entity, um, but they kind of like manage the public utility. So most people kind of have to go through PG&E Uh, to get their energy needs taken care of in a lot of places. You could run it under that model. I think you could run it under the government actually has a division that does everything. Um, And again, my inclination would be lean more towards the government does it. Some people I think would lean towards the private sector. PG&E is a good example where you've had some private sector issues. Um, But I don't think either one of those, like I think both of those can work. My inclination again is typically government is better because I like the 
public accountability component of the government where like their goal is not making money. Their goal is providing the service. If they're not doing that correctly, I need to go elect new people and I'm organizing to an institution that has to be publicly accountable rather than against an institution that like, if they think it's gonna affect their profits, maybe they'll make a change, but otherwise they probably don't care. Mm -hmm. But again, yeah. I totally get that that is not a shared uh, inclination. Yeah, and I think what maybe what Sid was getting at is the kind of proliferation of the internet and the like innovation we've seen after the internet came about was mostly thanks to the free market and, and, and private sector, for example, like, I don't know, Microsoft, Dell, Apple, um, HP, all fighting it out to give us the best products. And now you're I'm saying that I have a great iPhone if it wasn't for the private sector is what you're asking me. Well, I, I, I guess what, what, I, what I would be saying is like, um, I, I wouldn't be, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have an iPhone if, if, if there was a public sector in charge of all of this stuff. I wouldn't have a, a nice MacBook Pro with a touch bar, but I mean like, th there's those kind of like innovations that you see in the private sector that I could never imagine happening with someone who treats it as just kind of a utility here, here is your government phone that you can use um, which, and you can call your mom and I'm one and that's it. Or, or like, you know, it's like stuff like that where there's not much reason to better cater to the consumer that I wouldn't see in a public sector um, sort of nationalization of that industry. But there is a reason to cater to the consumer, right? The reason is you want to be a great public servant. Um, which is a different reason, you're right, than uh, I want to make a lot of money. So, and it's an interesting question, right? Like, would you have the innovations that we've had, how different would they look under a radically different system? I mean, we obviously, we don't live in a fully capitalist society. We don't live in a fully socialist society. Neither of those things exist anywhere in the world, right? So like, it's all a spectrum. Um, and I would say that we have elements of actually corporate protectionism in the United States, which are very interesting because they're kind of like socialism for the large, large yeah. company. Um, but, uh, you know, when you think about, so sh my short answer is, would we have an iPhone without the private sector or would we have like some of the cool things we have on the internet without a private sector? My short answer is, I think it's an unknowable question, but there's no inherent reason that it couldn't happen in the public sector. And I think in, you have some examples, you know, Sid, you talked about um, kind of local governments early, earlier. Mm -hmm. There yeah. are some local governments that have done like really interesting and innovative uh, experiments in, in things that they've put out there. And I tend to think about San Jose Unified in this way, in some respects, mm -hmm. like I think the way we evaluate teachers in San Jose Unified, this is not like a product, right? But like, it's something that I think is ahead of the way a lot of places have done it historically. Um, and it came out of the public sector because I think a lot of people who work in it really want to deliver a great service. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I don't see an inherent difference between the two in terms of how they should pan out theoretically. And again, I think it comes back to like a philosophical question of which do you think does motivate people more? Because mm -hmm. um, I think there's examples of both working and there's examples of both tanking horribly. And I, I guess you mentioned SJUSD there, and I, I guess that's a good segue to uh, refocus on unions for a second, um, because um, you talked about how like in innovative SJUSD has been. Um, and I think a lot of um, people who don't support um, public sector unions would say that um, actually teachers unions have like stifled innovation and change and they've stifled any kind of 
new um, achievements in education. And meanwhile, you've seen things like non-unionized educational sectors like charter schools, um, where they have a lot more innovation and a lot more um, ways to shake out the status quo. Uh, what would you say to that? So I would say that uh, there are, it's a similar answer to what I just said, but I think there are examples of unions working collaboratively with management in the education sector to push really exciting, great innovations. And there are examples of places where the union might be viewed as an intransigent obstacle to certain education policies mm -hmm. um, and may actually be an obstacle to certain education policies. Just like in the charter sector, there are some uh, charter management organizations that are doing great and innovative work for kids. And there are some that are totally corrupt and siphoning public money uh, in a way that should really alarm people. Um, mm. And my view, again, if you look at, so, and I actually, I can send you this, Adrian, if you want, and Sid, if you're interested. So I wrote a piece when I was um, with the San Jose Teachers Association on the executive board um, called, uh, I think, Teachers Unions, What We Do and How Students Benefit. And I talked about kind of the five reasons that I thought, or the five branches of work that I thought SJTA did that were really positive. And then I said, you know, a lot of people do see the problems that Adrian just mentioned um, in certain education institutions. Why is that and how should we think about them? And my thinking is that a lot of, there's a lot of history in a lot of these places of the employees having top-down decisions made about what their work conditions are gonna look like that aren't good for students and that aren't made in the best interests of either teachers or the families who are sending their kids to school. And they've also been screwed in situations where, you know, their districts have not been fully upfront about what their resources are, have not engaged in good faith bargaining. And I think in some places, the history of those labor management relationships have caused people in the unions to, to feel like they're under attack and in fighting mode all the time, such that there, it's really, there's no trust, right? So they feel like they need to be intransigent because there's got to be a catch. There's got to be something that people are doing to screw them and to create conditions that are ultimately going to be worse for the kids. It's really hard to repair that relationship when it happens. And I would always just put more of the burden on management because at the end of the day, management are the higher paid people who are the ones who ultimately get to make the decisions like the union comes in bargains but they don't have as much power as management um and they're on more equal footing when they can negotiate with management but they don't have quite as much so i always say if you want to repair those relationships and there certainly are places where the unions are being intransigent you've really got to look to management to come to the table and be fully transparent like you talked about before like the importance of transparency mm -hmm. be fully transparent put some of their own power on the table and say, hey, we're actually willing to work with you and this is going to be different than what you've experienced in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think only then can you really get that trust built. But there are definitely cases. I mean, I'm not going to stand, sit here and tell you that there are no unions around the country that do things that I think are crazy and not good ideas, because um, there are. But I always look to management to like kind of engage first in a way that creates the conditions to allow unions to really be productive partners in whatever they're working on. Yeah, and I guess going off of what Ben said, I guess more or less in defense of unions, when he talked about uh, corporate welfare before, I feel like that's a scenario in which it's 
there is no incentive to repair your relation because I mean, for example, one example that comes to mind was with the nuclear industry, I think. Uh, and then previously the government, when the government started providing a lot of nuclear subsidies around 2005, um, the nuclear companies, they just started lobbying the government for more subsidies and they never actually had to provide better services or better energy. And that was a very viable way of making profit. You can kind of just ask the government for more money and then the government gave it to them and then they just lobbied the government for more money and that cycle continued. And that's, yeah, personally, I don't think Adrian and I really are big fans of corporate welfare, but I also feel like just like anyone? build off of what you said. Yeah. <laughs> well, the people <laughs> who are getting it. The corporations yeah. here are. Exactly. Um, I mean, if you but, look at, and sorry to interrupt, Sid, but yeah. on the corporate welfare piece, if you guys look at the coronavirus relief at, relief acts that have passed so far, oh, there is more money. Heavy, right? Yeah. Oh, there's so there's like more money for businesses in them than for like stimulus payments, unemployment benefits, healthcare, like everything mm -hmm. else combined. It's crazy because like a lot of our government is is bought by these kind of large companies. Mm -hmm. So sorry, I apologize to interrupt. No, no, yeah, that was exact. That was. A more or less my point, which is that the corporations, if that's a viable way of making profit, then the only person like technically in a capitalist system, the only person you have to report to is your shareholder as a corporation. But I guess like to your point, uh, in a union, you do have to at least somewhat report to the, like the people who elect you, right? Because that's how union membership works, right? Or union leadership works. The union members get together and they elect whoever the leader is. Um, so yeah, at least there's at least I think there might be actually more accountability in that scenario than there would be uh, with the other corporate welfare scenario. In that nuclear example that you brought up, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this was intentional, but it kind of reminded me of a, a big sort of criticism of um, public sector unions, which is that um, what they do is they, they lobby politicians for more money. So they, they, they donate to the politician's campaign and, and in turn, the politician is spending not, not their money, but the taxpayer money then gives these public sector employees a bunch more benefits and money. And that's why like um, pensions have gotten just out of control with public sector workers. That's why we've seen like cities and states go bankrupt over it. Um, and like, it's kind of a facet of that iron triangle, I guess, um, of corruption. Um, but that might be a mischaracterization. I want to hear what Ben thinks, but I think that kind of makes sense to me that there is corruption in that way. Yeah. So I, I mean, I would disagree with that characterization. And I think oftentimes when we look at like pensions and the fights that cities have over pensions, I think the whole framing of the discussion is wrong because the cities have huge pots of revenue and huge amounts of spending. And what they often do during those discussions about pensions is they say, here are essential workers performing tasks like teaching our kids or doing the fire services in the city. How greedy are they to want to secure retirement but no, we're not gonna raise taxes on rich people. Um, like that is oftentimes the way that like, you see they're having the discussion about these crazy pensions, but they're not having a discussion about the other things that they could do to raise revenue um, or to think about funding their commitments. And then the other piece that's really interesting is when you get into these pension discussions, there's often lawmakers will say like, we need to renegotiate this because even though we kind of agreed on it, like we can't sustain it. But then when they have like an agreement with a company that is gonna be providing services for something, they'll be like, we can't break that, that's a contract. And it's like, but you have a contract with your workers that you wanna break on something else. Um, so I think that those are a couple of the pieces that often get missed in the discussions about like 
government workers' pensions and things of that nature. Now, in terms of them lobbying for certain policies, yes, they often do lobby for more funding for the public sector. So I agree with that. I generally think the public sector needs more funding, so I think that's good. Um, but, uh, you know, there was really interesting research from a Princeton professor named Martin Gillens um, that he did several years ago on how responsive policy is to the political preferences of different groups. So we analyzed based on like individuals income and then he analyzed based on special interest groups. And the thing that he found when he looked at individuals was the probability if you're like a regular person and you support something that the government is going to pass it is pretty constant. So like if 5% of people who are like lower income to middle income support something there's a relatively set probability that the government will pass it. That probability doesn't shift if like 95% of low income and middle income people support it if you control for other factors. If you then look at high income people, if everybody who's high income opposes it generally doesn't pass, if everybody who's high income supports it, it has a much higher probability of passing. And then when you look at special interest groups, what they found is most special interest groups, their preferences align pretty well with the interest groups of the rich. One of the few sets of special interest groups whose priorities align with low and middle income people's preferences are unions. So typically the large public sector unions and many of the private sector unions in the United States, they advocate for things that the general public tends to support. So I would say that they're usually, even though Yes, there are cases. And again, like, I think with all of these things, you always have to say the caveat of like, absolutely, there are cases where this can go wrong and you can have a corrupt relationship between an individual politician and a specific union, just like you can have that in the private sector. And I tend to think they're more common in the private sector. But again, you know, they happen in both places. I think the typical thing that I would say is unions are one of the few forces that we have politically that advocate for stuff that counterbalances all the other things that are being advocated for by the people who like own our economy. And I think I would pose you a question, which is that if we're able to get the big money, special interests, that, that money out of politics, would you then support that labor unions shouldn't be able to lobby either? I would not because I think, so I think membership organizations should totally be able to uh, participate in political activity. Now I, well, it, I, I guess I should say it depends on what question you're asking specifically. So like if you're asking, do I think that there should be contribution limits and public financing um, rules that potentially unions have to comply with, then I would say, yes, I do. Do I think that those rules should be the same for unions and corporate entities? I don't. Um, and to give you just again, an example, when I was running the campaign for Mark Elrich, who's now the Montgomery County Executive in Maryland, um, we had a lot of union support. He was like a former teacher and like a big union supporter. Um, so, but there was a new public financing law in Montgomery County, which basically said, if you agree not to take more than $150 from any individual and agree not to take any money from any organization, or quote unquote special interest group and unions were included in that, then the government will match the funds that you get from individual donors so that you can kind of compete with these big money spenders. So the way it worked in Montgomery County was 
the first $50 you got from somebody, the government would match six to one. So if you gave me 50 bucks, I get 350. The next 50, the government would match four to one. And then the 50 after that, they'd match two to one. So if somebody gave me 150 bucks, I got 750 for that campaign, which was like hugely beneficial. And it was a great, like I thought it was a great public financing system, not as good as the one in Seattle, but still pretty good. Um, but I thought the rules should not have been the same for unions as for corporations, because again, the union money is like a collective pot of membership contributing their dues and saying, you know, we're, we're all like paying a monthly fee to be part of this organization. Whereas I think when you're talking again about a corporate entity that's spending on these elections, you really are talking about a small group of people who control all of that decision-making. They might have 10,000 employees, but the 10,000 employees are not involved in that political decision-making at all. I was just curious about like talking about union fees specifically. I know there was that recent Supreme Court case or Janus versus some string of letters. Uh, we talked about right to work, right? I was curious about what Ben's opinion on that was and Adrian's opinion. Yeah. Should I let you respond to that first, Adrian, before I answer that? Oh, sure. Um, so you were talking about how um, unions um, shouldn't be subject to the, to the same rules as other sort of um, companies or corporations. And um, one thing that, I mean, maybe you can educate me better on this, but I've always wondered why. For example, we like um, levy antitrust rules on monopolies in the, in the market of products, but why don't we also apply antitrust laws on unions, which are essentially monopolies, right, in certain cases, and then that distorts the market and that's like anti-competitive. Why do we favor um, unions and not companies when we're saying, okay, you can't do anything that's, that's anti-competitive? And the same thing, I guess, would, would go towards like money and politics. I'd argue all of it is bad. I don't think that because, um, it's like if I, I were to say that I support a carbon tax, so let's only allow carbon tax lobbying, no other lobbying because I support it. That, like to me, that, that's, what, that's what it sounds like. You can tell me I'm wrong, but like I feel like that, that's what I'm kind of hearing right now. Um, so what, why is there that discrepancy? Yeah, so I mean, on the carbon tax question or example, I think the difference is that's issue-based. And I think mm -hmm. this is uh, organization slash structure-based. So I would say a union is a fundamentally different organizational structure than a corporation because you again have a set of members who are all contributing and all have ways to democratically participate in that decision-making process. Whereas with a corporation, you have a lot of people who are like theoretically represented by the organization, a lot of money being represented by the organization that is controlled by a very small group of people without a democratic accountability mechanism. So to me, that's the difference between like the structure of a union and the structure of a corporation. I, I think you're right. Like I can't say, well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I'm not a free speech purist. Um, and I think again, there are people who share my political views who are, but I think the way that I view all of these issues is through a lens of power. So my view typically is when like you think of an issue like free speech or like campaign financing, mm -hmm. you're thinking about, so some people view it as like, if Adrian wants to say something and if Ben wants to say something, we should both, and if Sid wants to say something, we should all three of us be able to say it. There should be no restrictions on any of our speech. But that doesn't take into account the fact that, um, you know, and this isn't a great example, but it doesn't take into account the fact that I have 
16,000 people who I can communicate with really easily, and you guys do. So if we had the exact same rules, I can just totally drown you guys out and make you like not be able to be heard. And again, like it's not the great example because I don't actually have that much more ability to get my views out, I don't think, than you guys do. I mean, I do probably have a bigger platform, but it's not as substantial as it is when you get to like a much larger scale. Um, so to me, like when you say, should there be the same rules for an entity that has $10 billion to be able to say something versus an entity that doesn't, to me, it's always, and it's hard to make policy this way. And this is the counter argument I always get when I talk to people about this, because they're like, in every situation, I've got to figure out who's got more power and how do I protect the person who has less power? And I'm like, yes, we have to try to figure that out. Um, because to me, that's the whole point, right? Like the reason you want a free speech law is not because I care about speech. It's because I care about the fact that like, you shouldn't be marginalized relative to me in being able to be able to get the word out about something. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I kind of think about these issues. Not so much as like, um, the same exact thing applies to everybody, but more as like, what's the power imbalance? Who has less power? Mm -hmm. And then what structure do I need to put in place to make sure the person with less power, the group with less power, can have power more equal to the thing that has more? Wait, I would just, so right. <laughs> I, I would just, I'm just curious about uh, this example, which I guess is a weirder example, but I'll say it anyway, which is that like, does like sometimes the groups who have less power have less power because of the things they're saying for example like i don't necessarily want like the kkk just because it has less power in our current society to have like a higher voice <laughs> yeah, um yeah. than any other organization like i feel like they have less power because they propose an evil ideology and i don't like i think i'm just curious like how would you take a metric or how would your metric of power take that into account a great question um and you know the kkk is an example where i would actually say that my proposed power analysis would suggest that they don't have very much ability to get out there and and give their views a platform because i would say that part of the power analysis is you also have to look at and this is probably where adrian will tell me it gets kind of dicey but where you also have to look at like the um the impacts on safety, security, and kind of the uh, general population of the views themselves. So like when you're thinking about the KKK, yes, they're a small group of people, but if they're asking to broadcast their views very widely with a history of what they have actually done physically to people as a result of their views and what connotations their views contain, that actually puts them in a position that puts other people at a big power disadvantage because their health and safety and security is at risk. Um, that being said, it's a great question because it's a very difficult thing to make a policy based on, um, which is why I think a lot of people in some ways lean towards what Adrian's view is on this, which is uh, you got to make like a standard, very clean thing across the board. I just worry a lot that when you do that, um, you end up not fulfilling your original intent, which is to make sure that people who are generally screwed are not like have the same ability. Like, and I think my, my guess is you guys can tell me if this is wrong, but my guess is that we all kind of 
believe in theory that everybody in the United States should have kind of equal opportunity to like take advantage of all the other things that are available to other people. Um, my view is when you do make kind of these blanket rules or leave things unregulated or kind of allow the private sector to run amok, what happens is that ideal of equal opportunity, you're always undermining it. Like there's no way to actually have equal opportunity if you allow those things to happen. But again, I think it's a very fair question and point because making the policy is really hard. I totally agree that um, like in the private sector, you can get opportunity. There's places where there's no equality of opportunity. So therefore you can't have blanket equality. That makes sense. Um, I think within free speech though, um, the way that you amass your platform that's much larger than ours is because you're saying things that people want to hear, right? And I, I feel like it, it's hard to say that there isn't equality of opportunity in the marketplace of ideas and of speech. Because if I go on Instagram and I start talking about things that people make them want to follow me, then I grow my following. You know, I, I don't feel like there's any kind of um, structural barrier to who wants to hear your ideas when it comes to that. So I think maybe, that maybe when looking into... Like, what about, like, I mean, I'd say another factor of, like, why Ben has a lot more followers is because he's, like, older and he's been doing this longer than we have, right? I'd say that, like, that that's true with wealth, too. Older people are generally wealthier. Yeah, and, like, that's like a that. facet of his of his credibility, right? So I want to hear someone who's worked at um, certain economic institute because they have better knowledge on issues. And I think he deserves his platform. I think that, he, like, a layman deserves to hear Ben than us. Like, I think that Ben is smarter than us and knows more about us. So they should hear his ideas better. So I think that like, I, I mean, you're very kind again, but I don't, I like, mm -hmm. I think, you know, that I wouldn't necessarily discount the fact that you guys should be heard on this stuff. I mean, I think you're right that like, when you have kind of research and experience on a certain issue, like people do want that. Mm -hmm. And part of your following might grow because you've amassed credibility on a certain issue. So I think that's a fair point. And I actually, I agree with you that like something like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook as initially conceived, I think they were really democratizing because they did allow the type of thing that you're talking about. I've had a lot of concerns recent, more recently about some of the social media companies because the algorithms that they employ do tend to privilege views that are already more powerful and have better platforms. Um, and so I think that that's something that's more of a concern today in social media than it used to. Um, in that, like, if you are kind of putting something out there from a platform that you already have, you just have a much better ability for it to be propagated than somebody who's kind of starting anew. But there is still more of an ability than it is, was the case in the past. I mean, before social media, what would you do? I mean, it's tough. You, you interjected, um, before... Um, so, I could say something that you, yeah. that, that you wouldn't like because I, I was praising you for a second. But um, for example, like, I remember I was talking to this um, friend of mine who's a communist and he said that um, we should silence all climate deniers because what they're saying is dangerous and wrong and hurtful and can hurt like X amount of people. I told him, yeah, that's true. I think what they say is abhorrent. But I think what you say is abhorrent to, to my communist friend. I think that like the ideology that, that you're putting forward has killed millions and has regress society so much, we should silence you. And I, maybe to Ben, I'd say, you know, I think that socialism is destructive and it's terrible and it's abhorrent, so we should silence Ben. So it's like, I think when you were saying about what's the subjectivity in that, if we were to go on 
a utilitarian argument, I'd say we should silence Ben, but I don't think that I want to silence you. So it's like, where, where do you draw that line, you know? So my proposal for that is uh, using the veil of ignorance. Um, are you guys familiar with that? No. So uh, John Rawls was a philosopher in the 1970s who uh, wrote uh, this book where he proposed this thought experiment called the veil of ignorance, which is the way you decide what ethical policy is, is you imagine that everybody is kind of abstracted out of their place in society and there's a screenshot of it frozen in time. So like there is somebody named Sid, Adrian and Ben who exist in the world um, and there's everybody else who exists in the world but none of us know who we're gonna become and be placed as. And then we have to negotiate in that like we're sitting kind of above the clouds. We negotiate based on where everybody is in the world. What do we think the correct policy should be as we sit up there, knowing that we have the chance to be placed as any of those people in society. Um, and, uh, you know, the conclusion of the thought experiment, depending on how you think about it, is either you kind of maximize the welfare of the most disadvantaged person, or you kind of probabilistically assign what sorts of risks you're willing to take based on which people are in what positions. But I think like engaging in that thought experiment to me is always like the way that we should try to figure it out is think about like, okay, if I was, if I knew there was a good chance I'd be assigned to this other position, would I agree ahead of time on this policy? That's actually really interesting. I'm, wait, I'm curious specific, like on the specifics of that thought experiment and I might read more about it, uh, but is it like, what I, cause I'm, a, I mean, different people have different skills, obviously, I think, and some, to some degree that is natural or something you're born with. Um, so when you get placed in some random person, would you have like any of the skills that you've accumulated or whatever, or like, or, or do you just get placed there? And like, if, even if you knew a lot of math and you get placed in the body of a plumber, you would only be able to like be good at plumbing. Is, is that kind of how it works? There's a big debate about what the specifics of it should be. So I think there are some people who run with it like that. There are some people who run with it as like, oh, you kind of conceive of everything previously. I think um, the situation in which you kind of become, the, have the abilities of that person and kind of are in the exact circumstances of that person is the more common one. And then some people actually say, get rid of like people who are adults but just do it for like new baby. So you know you're gonna be born as a baby somewhere new in the United States okay, or in the entire world. Um, and you don't know which baby you're gonna be or what family you're born into, but you have to agree ahead of time on what you think the right policy is knowing that you'll, you'll be a baby. Um, so you won't necessarily become a plumber, but you might be born in like rural India without anything, right? Um, or you might be, born into a super rich household in the United States and um, you don't know. I think that's a really good way. I mean, I personally, I'm assuming there are other versions of it, but I actually really like that version specifically where you're born into some, like you start randomly anywhere across the world, at which point I think, uh, yeah, definitely it would be, it would be akin to maximizing a quality of opportunity because you're basically saying no matter where I'm born, I'll have the exact same opportunity and hopefully I'll be able to succeed there. I think that's that's it's a really good justification for equality of opportunity. Actually, I just had another thought that kind of went back to the labor union stuff. 
but specifically on this like idea that labor unions should be able to donate more than corporations, uh, I was curious if you thought that like then since corporations don't represent the workers, what about if it was like a worker-owned co-op? Would they have like similar, would you mark them as like similar in terms of donation privileges to a labor union or more towards a corporation? It's a really interesting question. I'd probably say more similar structurally to a labor union if it's a worker-owned co-op. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, again, it raises, yeah, an interesting question, but I think I, I think I would say more similar to a labor union in terms of structure. And to be clear, the, and maybe Adrian, maybe I misinterpreted your question or was answering a different question, but I do really like the system in Seattle where everybody literally like every individual person just gets four $25 democracy vouchers that they can then give to anybody. And that's like, if you had a system where like that was all that was able to happen, I think that would be pretty cool. We'll wrap it up here then. Thanks so much for being on, Ben. It was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, Hope we appreciate it. Have you back it. some time. Yeah. No, thank you guys so much for having me. This is great. I'm, I think it's cool that you're doing this, this podcast. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing more about what your experiences in college are like.